Well, today is our final session in the Discipleship Keywords series we've been doing based on the Way of Jesus Handbook. The title today is Part of a Better World Community. First section, the Kingdom of God is a non-political party. Tomorrow is our national election. During the campaign, politicians have been rolling out platforms designed to appeal to a variety of persuasions. The dynamics of this process has the effect of dividing people, even within a household, into different groups. The Quebecers have their party seizing on a debate question that seemed to imply English-speaking media don't really understand the sensitivities of their situation. Greens are strongest in BC. Urban and rural areas seem broadly different in their approach. Topics such as the environment and childcare and gun control and dealing with COVID have been up for active debate in recent weeks leading people to gravitate towards particular parties. Rural Canadians head to the polls, except for those who voted in advance, to elect their government. Will it be a minority or a majority government? Whatever the outcome, after tomorrow, to some degree, party divisions will need to be set aside when our representatives sit down in Parliament and set out to govern the country. There may be deep divides before the election, but we need politicians to eventually start to work together and agree on key matters so the country can move ahead. In the church, we don't have parties like political parties, but we do have denominations. The church in a given community may have many believers, but meeting in subgroups in different buildings due to denomination. The Bible reminds us that we are to be one in Christ, regardless of how we're organized in our congregations. When evangelist George Whitfield preached from the balcony of the Philadelphia courthouse to thousands who gathered, he cried out, Father Abraham, whom have you in heaven? Any Episcopalians? No. Have you any independents or seceders? No. Have you any Methodists? No, no, no. Whom have you there? We don't know those names here. All who are here are Christians, believers in Christ, men and women who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. Oh, is this the case? Then God help me, God help us all, to forget party names and to become Christians, in deed and in truth. Some of you will remember the musical group Tim and the Glory Boys. One of their songs is, The Kingdom of God is a Party, but not a political party or a denominational party. Today, as we look at how the Bible, the manufacturer's handbook, describes the church, we see it as a community that is presenting, proving, peacemaking, prompting, and providing. Next section. Presenting, not resenting. The community's sacred sorting things out. We begin with Matthew 18.20, one of the most oft-quoted verses on church life. Jesus said, For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Jesus seems to be saying something special happens when believers gather in his name that doesn't happen when we're not gathered. You may have a very fine quiet time on your own, but when you get together with other Christians, whether in a small group or the weekly Sunday large gathering, the Spirit of Jesus promises to be present in a way that isn't applicable otherwise. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. This parallels what the Apostle Paul described in 1 Corinthians 14.24. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, 
he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Back to Matthew 18.20, where two or three gather together. Where is the context? Well, chapter 18 begins with the disciples asking Jesus, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In verse 10, Jesus cautions them against looking down on one of these little ones. Verses 15 to 17 have an important passage outlining the process to follow when our brother or sister sins against us. In verse 21, Peter asked Jesus how many times he has to forgive his brother when he sins against Peter. Isn't that just like what happens when people get together? We vie for being first. We pass judgment on others and look down on them. We hold something against someone because they've treated us badly. We avoid someone because they've hurt us in the past. Yet here we find verse 20 smack dab in the midst of all this. People being fallen people. Sometimes it would be easier emotionally to just stay home and not risk having to see or greet that person who behaved badly, who we think owes us an apology, who has poor social skills or some might say came from the wrong side of the tracks. But Jesus is implying when we manage to work through all these resentments and judgments and past histories and forgive and reconcile, he becomes present in a special way. That is grace. The objective in conflict resolution is not to win the battle, but to win over your brother or sister. There's a big difference. When we come together in Jesus' name, he promises, There am I with them. He is present. So when we gather in his name, we are a faith community, community presenting Jesus in our locality. Pastor Phil Delso writes in the Way of Jesus Handbook, The community of Jesus is a proving ground for helping someone and having someone help me, where I can be corrected and encouraged, where I can be protected against excess and spiritual pride, where I learn to accept his discipline through his body. In that sense, we have Jesus' presence helping us grow as individuals toward a maturity of character. Next section. Proving the community's wonderful weirdness. In John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays for the church, those who would believe in him through the message of his disciples. His prayer seems to be saying the unity of the community would be very significant. John 17, 20-23. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I've highlighted the purpose-oriented conjunctions here, so that, that, and to. Why is unity or oneness important? So that the world may believe that God the Father sent Christ the Son. Complete unity matters because it is to let the world know two things, that the Father sent Jesus, and that the Father has loved the believers even as the Father has loved his Son. If our unity is important for communicating to others that the Father sent the Son, we might say the Christian church or faith community that shows unity is proving or demonstrating Jesus really came from God. 
Early on, the apostles could point to an empty tomb. Now we ought to be able to point to how much Christians love one another. This makes more sense when you think about the political parties we mentioned earlier. It is so natural for fallen people to gravitate into cliques, to people who are like me, who share a common upbringing, to whom I can relate. They understand me. Yet the Christian church ought to be characterized by great diversity. Old and young, rich and poor, male and female, different races and backgrounds and stations of life. This diversity, the fact that people who are so different can actually get along and appreciate one another, becomes a sort of divine flag, a wonderful weirdness that stands out from most other groupings in society. By virtue of our sheer randomness, we're eclectic, we welcome all kinds. The church on earth ought to be so diverse, it's a small foretaste of the kingdom of heaven, where there will be people from every tribe and nation. The church is an inbreaking of the kingdom of God here and now, in our local context, with Jesus the King really present. Pastor Phil notes, Because Jesus is alive in us by his Spirit, we have the privilege of bringing the welcome of Jesus into any group of people, but particularly into the group that is dedicated to Jesus. Because Jesus is alive in us, we are his agents, his creative community. The diversity of the church is a divine flag. It's wonderful weirdness, incorporating people from vastly different backgrounds, signals God's grace at work through Jesus. By that miracle, we can actually get along with those who might otherwise find it difficult to get along. Well-known Bible commentator Warren Wearsby writes, I had decided to be a Christian first, a pastor second, and a Baptist third. I wasn't going to make denominational affiliation a test of spirituality or fellowship. My ecclesiastical home has been with the Baptists, and I've tried to live apart from anything that dishonors the Lord, but I don't think there's a drop of denominational blood in my veins. In more than four decades of ministry, I preached in Christian churches of many denominations and no denomination. I've discovered that Bob Cook was right when he said, I've learned that God blesses people I disagree with. Next section, peacemaking, the community's cross-generated commonality. Ephesians 4 presents one of the most beautiful sketches of what church life ought to be like in the whole New Testament, and we'll get to it in a minute. But you've got to remember the context. In Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul describes how Christian faith has overcome one of the deepest divides there is, that of race and religion. Ephesians 2.12 Remember that at that time you Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. A huge divide. Verses 13 to 17 continue. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. So Jesus' death on the cross, abolishing the regulations of the law, was a supreme act of peacemaking, 
so that Jews and Gentiles could now worship together in the early church. Ephesians 3.6 This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Sharers, having something in common. I am participating in a community of followers of Jesus on mission to the world. Saying seven in the way of Jesus. Verses 16 to 19 in chapter 3 are a prayer that the Ephesians be strengthened through the Father's Spirit in their inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 3.19 And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Our unity is very real and organic, having the Spirit in our inner being, Christ dwelling in our hearts, knowing his love, being filled with God's fullness. To be a community is to have something in common. We have Jesus in common. We belong to him. We find our identity in him. Not what province we're from or where we stand on the environment or gun control or you name the issue. Not our gender or background or socioeconomic status. It all belongs to him anyway. This peacemaking emphasis of how Christ has abolished dividing walls of hostility brings us to chapter 4 where we see unity tied together with working at peace. Chapter 4, 3 to 6. Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Peacemaking takes effort, says make every effort, overcoming hostility, but the oneness is real. Three Lutheran pastors were invited by a Catholic priest to attend Mass one Sunday at his church. They arrived a bit late. All the pews were filled and they had to stand in the back of the church. The priest noticed them as he began the Mass and he whispered to one of the altar boys, Get three chairs for our Lutheran friends. Well, the altar boy didn't hear, so the priest spoke a bit louder, motioning to the rear of the congregation, Three chairs for the Lutherans. Dutifully, the boy arose, stepped to the altar rail, and loudly proclaimed to the congregation, Three cheers for the Lutherans. Next section, prompting, the community's encouragement. One of the great blessings of meeting with other Christians is to be encouraged in our own faith. We read in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. See the two one-anotherings there? Spur one another on and encourage one another. Yet, apparently, even then, back in the early church, some were missing out on that blessing by giving up meeting together. What are we to spur one another on towards? Spur them to become aggravated? No. Toward love and good deeds, it says. Last week, during a pastoral visit, I heard how another member of the congregation had gone to this person's house and made them breakfast and helped them get started on their day. I love catching my flock doing good deeds with a low profile. Another member I phoned out of the blue I caught helping his neighbor with some yard work. Keep it up. 
and all the more as you see the day approaching. When Christ returns, may he find us practicing love and good deeds. Ephesians 4 suggests it's as we carry out such acts of service that we become mature. Paul says the role of the pastor-teacher is, 4.12 on, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Being active in ministering to others' needs would seem to be part and parcel of attaining maturity, knowing Jesus, experiencing his fullness, and relishing congregational unity. Paul goes on in 4.15, Instead, speaking the truth in love will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Growth as a Christian here is associated with speaking and acting in love, each one of us doing our part, contributing to the ministry of the whole body. As we do that, we receive Jesus' direct supply that helps us grow. Next section, providing the community's compassionate concern. That emphasis on loving speech and action brings us to our last point, compassionate generosity. In Acts 2 and 4, Luke gives us quick snapshots of the early church's activity with a focus on helping others. Acts 2, 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And Acts 4, 32, 34 and 35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Here we see the effect of unity in community, made real by Jesus' self-giving and our subsequent faith in him. They were together. They had things in common, sort of like Jesus having a common purse with his disciples. They gave to those in need. They were one in heart and mind, not selfish, but caring and shared everything, to the point that there were no needy persons among them. They were so invested in the welfare of the group that they didn't count any of their possessions their own. Self-interest had been crucified. What mattered was helping others. They sought to be good stewards of the funds the Lord had entrusted to them. And so the early Christian community became one that provided amply. It was marked by compassionate concern. A survey by the Barna Research Group pinpointed the top five reasons why Americans choose a church. A nationwide sampling was asked what were the few key factors that determined whether they would return to a church they have visited. Of the 22 factors named, here are the top eight reasons for selecting a church in order of importance. Theological beliefs. How much people care. Quality of sermons. Friendliness to visitors. Help to poor and disadvantaged. Quality of children's programs. How much you like your pastor. And denomination. Now, how many of these eight top factors would relate to compassionate concern? Well, I see four of them. 
how much people care, friendliness to visitors, help to poor and disadvantaged, and how much you like your pastor. Note especially the second top reason, how much people care. Of course, that would be important in wanting to come back to a church. If we care, we will share. The medieval theologian John Duns Scotus was visiting Rome, and the Pope took him into the Vatican treasuries. Running his hands through the silver, the Pope said, No longer does the church have to say, Silver and gold have I none. Scotus replied, Well, that's true, but also no longer can we say, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Last section, Let's Make the Church Together. Well, there you have it. Christ's community of faith is about presenting him wherever two or three gather in his name, proving him where, by our unity despite our diversity, peacemaking where divisions such as race or class might keep us apart, prompting believers to further acts of service as Jesus strengthens them internally, and providing for others as Jesus' compassion moves us to respond to needs we see. During vacation Bible school one year, a pastor's wife had an unusual experience with her primary class. About an hour before dismissal, a new student was brought into the room. The little boy had one arm missing, and since the class was almost over, the teacher had no opportunity to learn the details of his situation, but she was nervous that one of the other children would say something insensitive to him, so she proceeded cautiously with the lesson. As the class time came to a close, she asked the children to join her in their usual closing ceremony. Let's make our churches, she said without thinking, putting her hands together to form the church. And as usual, they began, here's the church and here's the steeple, open the doors and suddenly the awful truth struck her. The very thing she had feared that the children would do, she had done. As she stood there speechless, the little girl sitting next to the boy reached over with her left hand and placed it up to his right hand and said, Josh, let's make the church together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you for sending Jesus to reconcile us to yourself, that our sins are forgiven. Thank you also for his reconciling us to each other, breaking down dividing walls of hostility. Help us demonstrate in our church family being one, having concern for each other, developing our muscles of compassion, reaching out with good deeds in our larger community, responding to the needs of others. Grow us in your complete love, Lord Jesus. Resolving our differences, help us come to know you more and the fullness of God in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.